and welcome to another episode of Meanwhile in an Abandoned Warehouse. My name's Owen Kelly and I'm here this time with Jake Harris from Access Space in Sheffield in the UK. So I think I'll just start by asking Jake... Hi Owen. Hi, hi. Can you give us a general history of Access Space in case people haven't heard of it? Yeah, sure. Well, Access Space is an arts and education charity uh, right in the middle of uh, Sheffield city centre. Sheffield is the fourth biggest city in England with a population of about half a million or 600,000. Um, Access Space started in, in the year 2000. Um, it was started by a guy called, an artist called James Wallbank and a few friends who um, discovered this kind of strange convergence of things that was happening at the time. Um, James had started a a project called the Redundant Technology Initiative, which was based around the idea that people were throwing away computers which worked. And these computers were very expensive, but they were constantly upgrading them. And uh, there was an opportunity here for to kind of like give people who had no resources or few resources the opportunities to engage with computer technology for nothing. Now, um, so... It's sort of, it's sort of evolved out out of a out of a, a talk that he gave at ICEA in 1999, I think it was, or 98, where um, he outlined this this idea where um, the computer hardware world and the computer software world seem to be in cahoots in terms of this upgrade cycle, which is very very expensive Not, uh, for the consumer. So every time a new piece of software came out, you had to get a new computer because it wouldn't work because your computer was too slow. So, and it was also the, the time when the internet was, was kind of starting. Hardly anybody was on the internet in 1999, 2000. Um, and particularly people who might benefit from it the most, and that is the under-resourced, the unemployed, people who were coming from mental health um, issues, um, ex-homeless people, that, that kind of thing. So what happened was we, we got some money and opened up uh, a small grant, opened up a place, a site in the city centre, and access space is still there and asked uh, the public and businesses to bring in their old broken computers and uh, to donate them to us. And we, we fixed them up and, and made them available for people um, with internet. So people could come in. It was, it was really like a free internet cafe uh, with a very strong education element. Uh, the idea was that you came in and you learned about it and um, you went away with more understanding of the digital computer internet world than, than, than he did when he came in. So, uh, and because it was very much an artist-led thing, um, it was about creativity. And luckily, uh, there was uh, an operating system available at the time called Linux, uh, which had been developed, which was uh, quite uh, it was quite new to most people, and uh, hardly anybody was using it. It was completely free. And it came with a whole load of applications, again, which were free, uh, with which you could do all kinds of things like audio, video, and graphics. So this is kind of where Access Space starts. It starts as a kind of resource for people, for artists, uh, who were always broke, of course, and other people who had, who had very few resources. And uh, it was open five days a week and uh, for free. And we got it funded five various sources and it's still going so in a different form that, yes 
So how does it how does it differ, and what was the route which you took from being essentially, as you say, a an educational free internet cafe through to the work you do at the moment, which I know for since I've been there and, and visited, I know includes three D printing and more art in quote marks activities as well as a makerspace yes one of the things that that we're always aware of is that um there's a a kind of evolution of of technology and um it's happening all the time around us and um around the year 2006 uh, professor neil gershenfeld of massachusetts institute of technology published a book called um, fab. <laughs> the idea was a fab lab. A fab lab is a fabrication laboratory. Now, um, it's it was the kind of interface between the digital world, the computer design world, and the physical world. That is the world where things exist in the real world. And uh, we found this extremely exciting because um, at the time we realized that there were a whole load of um, pieces of hardware out there which you could actually purchase for not that much money. Uh, and because we were so ori- computer-orientated, we, we realized that the, the, the kind of linking them up wasn't going to be too difficult for us. So um, the, the, whole, the whole kind of like thrust of this was that the maker scene in the UK uh, didn't really exist um, but it was happening in the United States. So we looked to the States and, and we looked at kind of like small organisations who were kind of creating their own little spaces with 3D printers and, and various other kinds of laser cutters and, and CNC routers uh, for as a community resource. And being a community resource already, we saw the opportunity here to open something up uh, which, which was very new, was very exciting, uh, and... Which, in which we could put artists to, to find out what you could actually do because artists are the best kind of people to put in this situation because they, really, they don't really care about restrictions so our artists just want to stretch things as far as they can, they want to push borders um, and so uh, it was really part of, uh, it was part of uh, uh, an EU funded um, initiative called Commun- uh, Sheffield Community Network which was a uh, we were partners with, it, with a local council city council uh, trying to get um, lots of little hubs around Sheffield um, to kind of help the local community become more digitally orientated, particularly uh, in terms of starting small businesses and that kind of thing. And in the centre of it was, was ourselves as a hub where people could come and they could learn about these new rapid prototyping technologies like 3D printing, etc., and laser cutting, and, and somehow perhaps create products, business ideas, um, and for artists create uh, artworks, which they could sell. Um, but underneath it all, really, we, we were trying to teach people about this stuff because it was new, and very much the same way we wanted to get people onto the internet and get them to learn about Linux uh, operating system in, in 2000. In 2011, when we opened it, we were kind of very interested in getting people to learn about this new technology and use it for their own benefit. Okay, just tell me, I'm going to go on and ask you some more historical questions, but just tell me the most interesting use of the 3D printing that you've seen so far since 2011 in Access Space. 3D printing. I say this because I'm always curious, because... Well, 
Well, 3D printing isn't... Unless you've got a very, very expensive printer, it's fairly limiting. Uh, we have historically had people coming into us going, oh, I want to make this thing on the 3D printer. And we look at what they want to create, and we just basically say, well, actually, you need the laser cutter. So the kind of Swiss army knife of this world is the laser cutter, because it, uh, it's very easy, it's easy to use. The 3D printer is very difficult uh, to create things for, and um, it's, there's all kinds of materials, uh, temperature dependent, um, the file has to be a certain type, has to be, uh, you have to understand how, how it all works before you can do something successful. That's partly um, why I was asking, to be honest, because my experience of 3D printers, which is actually very quite limited, but it's limited in part because I realised that you have to import into the ones I've had any contact with, you have to import very detailed 3D artwork. And so to get, in order to yes. output anything, you have to have a detailed knowledge of CAD software or something beyond CAD software. Am I right? Indeed. Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 there are different stages here uh, in creating um, a, a finished 3D printed object. Now, um, it's, the, the 3D printer uses something called G-code, which is um, a code which all, all of these different um, rapid prototyping um, uh, hardware pieces use. It's basically, it, it plots in three dimensions. So it's X, Y, Z axis. Uh, and it tells the, the uh, piece of hardware where to cut or where to print or where to do whatever it's doing um, at a particular point in time in space. So the, the way it cuts is that it starts somewhere and it ends somewhere, but that path which it uses is very important. Now, um, so... For instance, the G-code you put into a 3D printer is, di is slightly different from a, a G-code that you put into, C into a, a CNC router or, 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 a, or, or a laser cutter. But ultimately, it's the same idea. So it's all about plotting in three dimensions. Now, you have to kind of understand this uh, when you're creating your files. And um, so it's kind of... I, I did a lot of research on this because I've got a particular project in mind. I, I just in October, I started using 3D printer uh, every day, and I discovered that there are lots of different limitations uh, depending on the kind of material you want to use and how the size, the actual air temperature, um, unless it's enclosed and has, has, a, has a heater or whatever inside it, but those are much more expensive than the ones we have because we don't have expensive ones. Um, we, we actually started off with what was called a RepRap, which is a kind of self-build kit uh, 3D printer, and they were very cheap, under £100, and as a proof of concept for a 3D printer, they were great. You can make cubes and hexagons and all kinds of stuff uh, very easily and close uh, pegs so you can hang your coat on, simple objects. When you get to um, the really more complex objects, and I'm uh, particularly uh, interested in the sculptural elements of this, where I'm trying to create human figures with a 3D printer, uh, it's a whole different ball game. And so, um, yeah. how should I put this? The more you know, the less you know you know. Um, you'd really, 
after six months, I really just wanted to go, oh my goodness, I'll, I'll get a few grand, I'll just hand it over to somebody and they can make this perfect thing for me. Uh, obviously, I can't afford that. But, um, but it, it, it's, it, it's, very, it's a very, very interesting world where initially I think people were thinking that this kind of fab lab world, this makerspace world, the 3D printer, the CNC router, the laser cutter, was going to be like a Star Trek scenario where you just like ask it to do something and something pops out of the end and it's really not like that. And um, something that we learned when in 2012, when we, when we first opened, we, we got four artists to come into our, our, our kind of like fab lab makerspace, which is which we called refab space because we, we hope to refabricate stuff using kind of waste products and, and kind of like people, stuff people have chucked away. And, and that's worked, you know, relatively well. But what they did was um, they just each one of them used it in an entirely different way and we saw how the kind of creative mind goes to goes and and kind of like looks at what's there and then goes off in, on, a, on a complete tangent and and ends up with with something kind of really surprising um, so it's kind of like the answer to the question what what can you do in a place like this, in a makerspace, or say, well, a 3D printer or a laser cutter, is it's endless. There, there, there are no restrictions. However, you you have to learn a lot about what it is you're doing, and, and, and it's um, it's a kind of uh, it's an interesting situation where you get somebody new coming in, and they think that it is more like a Star Trek replicator, and it, and then you sort of unfold their idea and you explain to them this, that and the other and how this is going to work and how they can't have that overhang there and how the material's not quite right for them for the, for the thing that they're trying to make and suddenly they kind of clock that oh god, it's a bit like learning to be a sculptor isn't it? Or learning to be a painter. It's, it's got you have to understand the physical world it's not just about CAD which is difficult enough on its own but there's this whole element of the you have to understand the digital world and you have to understand then the physical world and the specifics of the material perhaps and the scale that you're going to use and all that kind of thing so yeah it's a lot to learn uh, and it's very very rewarding when you get something right we've had some really brilliant success stories of people who just walked through the door with ideas and we've helped them make stuff which have actually they've made commercially and um, earned a living from um, and uh, what kind of things? Know. Just, I, I just, I don't. You don't need to describe anything in great detail, but just give us a sort of flavour of that, what those things yeah. are. Well, our big success story is uh, a company called Pimeroni, who create, uh, who sell and create stuff for uh, around the Raspberry Pi, and the. Uh, we knew a guy who used to go into the pub across the road called Paul Beach. He was a graphic designer. He actually created the Raspberry Pi logo, uh, so he knew the guys. Um, but he had this really interesting idea where he wanted to create a case for the Raspberry Pi. Because if people know what a Raspberry Pi is, it's basically mm. a s- small circuit board with some things stuck on it. And in itself, it's quite vulnerable. Um, so you want a, a solid case for this. And um, he came up with this idea of creating... Um, a case for it which is made out of layers and you slot the layers together and as you're slotting them together you put the Raspberry Pi inside and then screw it together so if you drop it you break one piece of the case not all of it which you can easily replace and um, and so he, he, he prototyped it with us and went on to um, create a, a, probably one of Sheffield's big 
uh, tech uh, startup successes of the last decade. Um, and um, they are now known internationally. Um, they spend a lot of time in China and the Far East and America and all the rest of it, doing trade shows and, and talking to makers all over the world. Um, and there's another guy who, um, who created uh, little speakers for, um, for I don't know, iPods as they were then or, or whatever, uh, where out of to old tobacco mm. tins. If you, I mean, I think so. They, these are kind of small things about the size of a mobile phone and about kind of like two centimeters deep. And he used to create custom speakers. He used to put a speaker in there and uh, have a really fantastic design on top, made out of wood or uh, MDF or, or whatever kind of or perspex or whatever. And um, he got he did a load of production and design at our place. And um, as far as I know, he's still in business. He certainly had contracts with places like the Conrad Shop in London and, and places in Paris. So, okay, that's that's interesting. Um, how do these ideas relate in your head or in Access Space's official head, if it has one, to ideas about the Commons and uh, cultural democracy? Right, so when Access Space started, um, the op- there was a big opportunity to let everybody uh, use uh, computer technology, the internet, for free. So there were no barriers. Uh, along with this, uh, we were using the Linux operating system, which is um, free Libre open source software. And since since... Since we opened, we've never used anything else. So in itself, the Linux operating system is a commons. It's a, like a repository of code online, mm-hmm. uh, if people are familiar with it. Um, you can down, download every line of the entire operating system and every line of code of all the applications that you can download for Linux. And you can uh, mess around with it, improve it if you like, uh, fork it, create a new application from it. So this is this is common common knowledge, if you like, embodied in this kind of idea of the Linux operating system in in, in free Libre open source software. Now, our idea is, if this stuff exists, people should be empowered to learn it, learn to use it, because it is a resource for the whole world. And so when the Fab Lab Stroke Maker stuff came available, we saw that in the same way. Uh, uh, because you could build your own 3D printer, your own RepRap, really, really easily. In fact, the RepRap was set up to be able to reproduce itself in its own way because you could print the, uh, the, 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 the plastic parts which held it together on a RepRap. So it was kind of self-replicating. So it had this kind of like nice kind of uh, aesthetic about it. Um, we think that you know that this stuff exists in the world, and um, it's our kind of duty, if you like, as an arts education charity with our ethos, to be to to allow people to be able to learn about it really, and to benefit from it, uh, in the same way that that we thought that computers and and the internet should be should be. And let open me to pursue us. the question of Linux for a second. Uh, what distro do you use at Access Space, or do you use many? We use several. Um, we, well, uh, we used to use uh, Mandrake back in the early days, and then Mandriva. Uh, we used Debian. 
Um, we and then Ubuntu, and we settled on Linux Mint because it's the easiest for a non-Linux user to, we think, uh, to to navigate around. Right. Now, the reason I ask that is to re- relating to our previous question, the previous question about cultural democracy and the Commons, etc. Because I was curious if you you effectively become an advocate for one distribution of Linux over the others, and because I, I do know that I mean a no. number of people. Pixelate as well, I think, have have decided that Mint is the one to use for people that don't understand Linux or who are either non-tech or have just about understood Windows. And so numbers of people have moved from Ubuntu yeah. to Mint. And does that, does do you ever have an official position? If I was to come to you in Access Space and say, which Linux should I use? You'd say... We'd give what? No, well, we give you an argument. You know, it's like um, it, it, we we feel um, it is uh, our duty to um, how would you say educate people and give them the best advice if we can. And if people are really unused to dealing with operating systems, uh, particularly, and I have never used Linux before, Mint is a good introduction. Um, and so uh, we'd recommend them using that. And it's very easy to use. It's got to, it's, you know, it's got a good um, software manager and all that kind of stuff. It's quite, it's quite easy. And um, okay, yeah. that makes perfect sense to me. How um, how does Access Space fit into the Sheffield cultural scene? Let me mean what. Let me explain what I mean by that. Sheffield, in my mind, has always been one of those cities like Liverpool, which is where I grew up which has its own, still has its own, local stroke regional culture. So in a sense, I've always felt, uh-huh. I know when I'm on Merseyside in a way that I don't necessarily know that I'm in, in, on the outskirts of Birmingham. And I've always, I, from the first time I went to Sheffield, I felt Sheffield has that same feeling. Oh, I'm in Sheffield. It has a cultural scene. Yeah. There are people here who are famous in Sheffield who probably have never been heard of in Cornwall. So given yeah. that it has a particular vibrant local culture, it probably makes sense, in my mind at least, to ask where you fit into that landscape in a way that it wouldn't if you were the Derby laser printing group or whatever. I wouldn't say, how do you fit into the cultural landscape in Derby? Which might be being very unfair to the people of Derby. But I think you know what I mean. <laughs> well, it's an interesting question because actually, I mean, we have for the, a very long time felt that we have more in common with people on mainland Europe than we do in Sheffield and, and in Britain. Uh, obviously, you know, we've worked with great people like furtherfield.org in London and various other groups around the country. But in terms of our ethos, we are very kind of international European um, now that that's kind of that kind of marks us out as being different from everyone else in Sheffield. Uh, plus, we've always had this kind of technology um, emphasis, which um, some people have found quite hard to get their head around. Um, also, we've worked with people from deprived areas and people on the margins a lot. So, the kind of people who've come into us historically haven't been the normal the kind of people who would normally if you like go into an art gallery or go into an art gallery opening so we've really quite different we have different emphases and um 
we don't fit in, is the answer, I think, uh, in the normal way that an arts organisation would, um, because of uh, A, our ethos, and B, uh, the work that we do. Um, So the the question about Sheffield, it's it's quite interesting. Now, I I was in in, in bands in Sheffield in the 80s and um, a partner in recording studios, and in a way, we always thought that sh- none of the stuff that we were doing could happen anywhere else. And there were, there were certain kind of like perfect storms which allowed these things to happen. And I think access spaces, uh, Sheffield and access space, that, that's also true. Um, we, we've talked to people over the years in, in different places in, in, in Britain about trying to kind of emulate what access space does. Uh, and... What we've kind of discovered in talking to people is it, not only is it personality driven, obviously, because people who are leading these, these initiatives are, are, are different and have different um, kind of visions of what it should be like, but the local community, the local the resources in the local area have a big bearing on what happens. So Sheffield is, um, you know, it's an ex-industrial town. It's got a lot of unemployment of the middle age unemployment, particularly men who worked in the steel industry historically. So there's this kind of, um, and because it has a kind of an engineering also, uh, there's a lot of engineering uh, companies there to do with steel, um, for, for, you know, for various things like um, the arms industry or, or the railways or whatever it is. So there's kind of like, uh, there's a very kind of techie head, if you like. Um, so you mix all these things together and access space makes perfect sense for it. And it's sort of like, well, could that happen in, I don't know, Halifax? Probably not. You know, could, could an access space happen in Hull? Don't know. Might, it might, might. but, but we, you know, these things haven't been tried. Um, you know, each town seems to, to, to grow its own individual artist-led community kind of organisations anyway. And um, so, I think I think you know, as someone who's, who's been in Sheffield for a very long time and um, done a lot in the kind of creative um, kind of industries there. I think that um, Sheffield has had a, a you know has allowed access space right. to exist. It's made sense for Sheffield culturally to allow access access space to exist. Right. Yes, I think so. Well, how have things changed at access space during the recent lockdown? Or have they? <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, it's, it's, uh, we closed. Um, we closed before lockdown, a week before lockdown. We were about to have the biggest exhibition of the year. We were about to have our 20th anniversary party. Uh, we were about to kind of launch the last three or four months of our current arts programme. Uh, it was all very exciting. Uh, and then the weekend of the, I don't know, uh, 13, 14 of March I just had to make the decision to close the doors um, we, we're very much a, a kind of people organisation obviously you know like other arts organisations we we're reliant on people coming through the doors uh, we'd sold out our, our workshops and stuff like that which we had to cancel or postpone uh, we've got you know the biggest uh, exhibition of the year which is 20 by 20 which is um, it's a community exhibition really for anybody to uh, Submit a work, 20 inches by 20 inches. Usually we have between 40 and 70 submissions. We had to stop that. Um, it's gone online at the moment. Uh, we're building up for a launch of the online. But um, 
Yeah, it's completely changed. The doors have been closed. Have you basically. managed to, or have you tried to, or have you wanted to establish any parallel online activity? Yeah, we're doing that. Uh, it's taken a while. I mean, we've been closed for about three or four weeks. Um, we have the 20 by 20 exhibition uh, prepared and up online at the moment. We're going to uh, launch it fairly soon in the next few weeks. Um, we're developing <clears throat> kind of educational resources, uh, videos and stuff like that. Um, historically, though, it's, it's quite interesting in the... We're kind of known as a kind of digital arts organisation, but we don't do much with video and audio uh, in terms of putting it online because we're too busy working with people. And so... Uh, and we, we only use recycled equipment and stuff that's donated to us generally. So uh, it is a little bit of a challenge kind of doing this stuff. It's not that the expertise isn't encumbered in, in, in the employees or, or people that we know. It's just that we're so used to actually face-to-face -face stuff. It's very, very important for us. Um, I mean, we'll see what the teething problems are when we have our first kind of on, on, online um, workshops sessions and stuff like that but uh, we expect it to be a quite a different experience for both both the uh, the the, uh, the tutor and, and, and the pupil if you like and the student so um, yeah we'll, we'll see how that goes we'll see if right. it actually works did you for find, us. in terms of the 20 by 20 exhibition uh, did putting it online I know you advertised the fact you were putting it online while the applications or the yeah. submissions were still open did that change who submitted or how many people submitted at all? Or was it the same amount of people you'd normally get and the same sort of people you'd normally get? Well, I think um, our message uh, about 20 by 20, um, the, the, the digital message, if you like, for the online thing went to a limited amount of people because um, the, the kind of... There are a lot of artists who don't engage with the digital world in the same way as, uh, you know, digital artists might. Um, and, you know, we, we, get, we get phone calls throughout the year and emails going, when is 20 by 20? And so you do it on an individual sort of way. Uh, you communicate individually. So I've got to go through all my emails and phone calls from the last year and find out who hasn't submitted uh, and who was interested. So it's, it's, quite, it's been quite a long process to push everybody online, if you like, um, which, you know, is, is quite interesting, really. Uh, there are a lot of painters in Sheffield. Um, and, uh, you know, their, their online world can, can vary massively depending on who they are, you know. And it, it, depends, it doesn't necessarily depend on age either. So there's, uh, yeah, get, getting, getting painters uh, and people who make, you know, um, frescoes and stuff like that to, to engage with digital. Yeah, it's, it's a little okay, bit well, challenging. Okay, well, on that note, do you think that uh, when the lockdown ends, it'll just be relief, we can get back to what we were doing? Or will things, either in a positive or a negative way, have changed such that there are long-term consequences for this period for access space? Yes. Um, 
I think there are long-term consequences for us all from this. Uh, we don't know what they are yet. And, and, and in Britain, anyway, uh, yesterday or the day before, the government was talking about social distancing for at least till Christmas. So what we're going to do, how we do it, we have no idea yet. We don't know what the restrictions will be. The, the, the restrictions mm. will be different in different countries. Uh, so... <clears throat> So, yeah, so, so we don't actually know. We're having to think about different scenarios and what to do, you know, depending on, on what we're allowed to do. So, um, and also funding. Uh, so fund, funding is quite important. Um, getting business model together so that we can possibly get some revenue in from on, our online activity. Uh, we're working on that. I'm working on that. Um, so... But then everybody will be trying to go online. So there's, uh, there's this. We don't know what's going to work, and that's that's interesting because that will have a massive effect on you know the coming years. Uh, 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 what people understand now, I think we're probably understanding digital life a bit more from this because there are a mm-hmm. lot more people online all the time. So because it is the only alternative. So it's a, like. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm quite, I'm, <laughs> I'm fascinated to hmm. see what will happen. Actually, uh, whether it's good or bad for access space or not, I don't know. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll let's leave it there then, Jay. Thanks very much. Have you got any final words you want to say, or anything you? I've got one final question for you. Uh, how big are these human yeah. figures? Uh, I mean, were you planning well, on doing life um, Let's see. No, no. Uh, there's another thing, you know. 3D printing. How big is your 3D printer? You know, you you know, you can't make a you can't make a standing uh, standard lamp on a, on a, on a on a on a one foot high 3D printer. So you either have to make them in sections or whatever. I, I'm doing very small. I'm I'm, I'm doing a, a thing for a little piece of land. Uh, the uh, arts uh, project I do with uh, filmmaker Monica Dutta um, I want to do it about scale so I'm doing people, small people, medium sized people, maybe a foot tall uh, You're reinventing so, uh, yeah. G.I. Joe or Barbie and Ken <laughs> Not quite <laughs> Not quite Alright well let's leave, let's leave it there then and, and we'll come back to you at some point if we may uh, after the lockdowns have changed to find out what did happen and where the world is in the world after lockdown because it's been very different I think in Finland than in, than in England what I understand so here the shops right. have been open all the yeah. time and here for cultural historical cultural reasons Finns are or have appeared to be much more accepting of social distancing I mean all those jokes about Finns never talking to each other etc it's keeping a distance and, and of course it's also geographical Finland has less people per square metre than Britain by a long amount, by a huge amount. And so, so people are used to yeah. what in Britain would count as social distancing. So it's worked differently from here sure. from, from the way it has in other European countries, I think. But so let's, let's get back together yeah. again at some point in the future and see what differences have actually happened. All right, thanks very much then. That'd be great. See you soon, Jake. Yeah. Bye. Nice to speak to you. Cheers. Bye.